This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to episode 15 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The July 4th weekend is here, another miracle of the modern age as one day stretches into four, and with it come the ritual sacrifices and libation offerings, otherwise known as barbecued hot dogs and hamburgers washed down with lots of beer. In a very real sense, July 4th is the secular Shavuot because it's the celebration of the birth of the American Republic and all for which it stands. Not only have we, the Jewish people, benefited from its freedoms, although not always the same way some others have, but these freedoms represent an interpretation of the very system of ethics, morality, and justice that we were commissioned to bring to the world 3,500 years ago. This week's topic, therefore, is the Jewish roots of American democracy. We're going to run a little longer than usual, by the way, because there's so much to say about this topic, and we'll only be scratching the surface at that. Democracy is a word of Greek origin, but it's a concept that flowed downward from Mount Sinai, not Mount Olympus. Long before Plato ever dreamed of a republic, Moses legislated for one that began with the premise, if not the actual words, that all humankind are created equal, and that all are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're still struggling to turn that promise into reality, but there should be no doubt about the roots of that promise, the Torah, starting with the creation of the first human, that single hermaphrodite creature called Ha'adam, the Adam, with a lowercase a, in the Torah's very first chapter. Our sages of blessed memory explained why the Torah depicts humanity's creation in that way, quote, so that one person will not say to another, my ancestor is greater than yours, unquote. In other words, the Torah right at its very beginning is teaching us that no one human could ever claim to be better than any other human, regardless of gender or skin color or religion or nationality or parentage or whatever other artificial divisions we create to keep us apart from each other. All people come from one person. All people are brothers and sisters to each other. All people are responsible for all other people. We're all one family. We're all equal to each other. At least we are in God's eyes, and we should be in our own eyes. Among the ways in which this equality is achieved by the Torah for the Israelite nation, whose job it is to teach it to the world at large by example, is through the acquiring by each individual of his or her own parcel of land within the state that he or she can never permanently lose. These cherished words, Go, proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, was in the Torah long before it made it to the Liberty Bell. And they specifically refer to the return of ancestral property at the Jubilee year, meaning every 50th year. Why is permanent property ownership so important to democracy? Because well into the 19th century, that was the basis for being allowed to vote, even in such democratic countries as Britain and the United States. Alexander Hamilton once referred to this voting as a necessity, quoting the 18th century British jurist Sir William Blackstone to back him up, said Blackstone, quote, If it were probable that every man would give his vote freely and without influence of any kind, then, upon the true theory and genuine principles of liberty, every member of the community, however poor, should have a vote. 
But since that can hardly be expected in persons of indigent fortunes or such as are under the immediate dominion of others, all popular states have been obliged to establish certain qualifications whereby some who are suspected to have no will of their own are excluded from voting in order to set other individuals whose wills may be supposed independent more thoroughly upon a level with each other." In another way, it was believed that poor people would be coerced into voting even against their own interests. The Torah, on the other hand, dealt with voting rights by making everyone a property owner. For the record, Alexander Hamilton was a born Jew. His mother, Rachel, was a convert who married a Sephardi man named Levine. Hamilton was never baptized, and Rachel isn't buried in a Christian cemetery. And we have the testimony, no less, of Alexander Hamilton's son, John Hamilton, who wrote in his biography of his father that he attended a Jewish day school, at least for a time. Although his father, quote, rarely alluded to his personal history, he mentioned with a smile his having been taught to repeat the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, in Hebrew at the school of a Jewess, when so small that he was placed standing by her side upon a table, unquote. That must have been one heck of a sight. Hebrew school must have made quite an impression on him that he would tell his children about it, and so fondly. Anti-Semitism was rife in early America, and Hamilton professed to being Christian, although not a practicing one, something not uncommon then for Jews who wanted to progress in American society, but his Jewishness kept showing itself in all kinds of ways. Among them, according to the historian Andrew Porwancher, Hamilton forged, quote, relationships with American Jewry that we don't see with any other founding father, unquote. And despite the anti-Semitic environment in which he lived, Hamilton also defended Jewish rights in the courts, and he even put a Jew on the board of Columbia University. It wasn't called Columbia at the time. In fact, he put the first Jew on the board of any American college. But I digress. Back to voting rights. Another qualification for voting was literacy. In the American South, into the latter half of the 20th century, literacy became a last-ditch effort to block blacks from voting. A person who couldn't read the law, it was argued, couldn't know enough to vote for those who made or administered the law. The Torah dealt with that too by requiring that everyone be literate enough to study the law. Everyone, women as well as men, children as well as adults. Thus, for example, we have this requirement from Deuteronomy 31 regarding what should happen on Sukkot in every sabbatical year. Quote, you shall read this Torah before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and your stranger who is inside your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and take care to do all the words of this Torah and that their children may hear and learn, Unquote. There's also this, as expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which many of us know better as the first paragraph of the Shema. Each person, it says, has the obligation to, quote, teach them the laws to your children, unquote. Let's talk about the manner of governing. The Republican democracy that is the Jewish state envisioned by the Torah is divided into three branches, or three crowns, as our sages put it, priesthood, kingship, and Torah. This is separation of powers, and it's not theoretical. In biblical times, before the rabbis came along, this division was priesthood, kingship, and prophecy. 
In my last podcast, I mentioned the dramatic scene in the Bible, in the Tanakh, that makes it very clear that the early kings of Israel, at least, took this separation of powers very seriously indeed. It's what allowed the prophet Nathan to keep his head, literally to keep his head, in a very ticklish confrontation, as it's matter-of-factly described in the second book of Samuel. That's when he confronted King David over his affair with Bathsheba, and his complicity in the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Nathan did so in full view of the entire royal court, and all David could do was to confess, quote, I have sinned against the Lord, unquote. As I posed the question last week, in any oriental court other than Israel, is it possible that the person who spoke those words would have been alive to finish the final syllables? Not likely. This was only possible because of the priest-king-prophet separation of powers in Israelite governance, and because David, at least, took that separation of powers seriously. King, however, is somewhat of an aberration in Israel. Ideally, we're not supposed to have a king. From the Torah's perspective, God is our king, and that should be enough. On the other hand, day-to-day rule was supposed to be the province of elders who were chosen by the people themselves. In other words, they were elected officials. The Torah, however, recognized that Israel might want an earthly king because everyone else has one, and we Jews from our earliest days have always wanted to be like everyone else and not be a people apart, as the alien seer Balaam calls us in tomorrow's Torah reading. Israel's king originally was also meant to be elected. There's no other way to interpret what Deuteronomy chapter 17 has to say. The relevant verse begins, quote, You shall set him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose, unquote. Which makes it seem that God does the choosing, but the verse has more to say. Quote, you shall set as king over you one from among your brothers, unquote. In other words, the people choose the king and God confirms the choice, provided the rules are followed. That king must be a natural-born Israelite, just as presidents of the United States must be natural-born Americans. The Torah doesn't stop there, however. There's no divine right of kings here. If ever the people brought the monarchy into being, the Torah said, the Israelite king nevertheless must be as tied to the Torah, to the law, as everyone else. Quote, and it shall be, when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this Torah, It shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this Torah and these statutes, to do them, so that his heart not be lifted up above his fellows, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. In other words, the king is only king as long as he obeys the law, the same law everyone else has to follow. And he has no subjects. Israel's king rules over his peers. All are equal in the Torah's eyes. That's classic democracy. There's so much in the Torah that deals with democracy. In the courtroom, for example, the Torah asserts the right to confront witnesses, provides a blanket protection against self-incrimination that doesn't even allow a person's confession to be used against him or her, and prohibits allowing social status to enter into judicial decisions. Rich or poor, all are equal in the eyes of the law. This insistence on achieving perfect justice in an imperfect world, by the way, 
carries with it the guarantee that the rights of the defendant are to be so zealously guarded that no witnesses may be allowed to testify until they've undergone harsh cross-examination about their motives by the judges themselves. Only if the judges are convinced that a witness has no axe to grind may he or she then testify in the case before the court. In virtually all things, the Torah seeks a level playing field. It recognizes, for example, that some people will be rich and others will be poor. It specifically empowers the poor, therefore, in order to shield them against the whims of those who would enrich themselves further at their expense, and it requires the haves to care for the have-nots. There's something very democracy-creating in a law code that insists, as the Torah does, that a creditor must return a debtor's security to him every night, and that while he may retake possession of that security each morning, in those days we're talking about the warmest piece of clothing a person may own, he may never enter the debtor's house to do so. That's because, according to the Torah, a person's privacy is his God-given right. Wage earners must be immediately paid for their work under Torah law. Runaway slaves must be freed, protected, and given a place to live. Contrast this to Chief Justice Roger Taney's 1857 decision in the Dred Scott case, which required a slave to be returned to his master. Slavery itself is an institution the Torah allows because it was the norm of every society, but it's also an institution it clearly abhors and one that it makes very difficult to maintain. The purpose of the Torah's laws regarding slavery is to make it so difficult and expensive to own a slave that slavery would disappear, which it eventually did. Despite what many people believe, the Torah sees women as the equals of men. This is most evident in one law in particular. According to Torah law, as defined by our sages, women have power over their own bodies. That's something we're still wrestling with in the 21st century. I'll discuss this fully in a future podcast about abortion rights. All of this and more served as foundation stones for American democracy, going all the way back to the pilgrims, although obviously there was a lot of picking and choosing going on. It was common for the pilgrims to turn to the Bible, to the Tanakh, for advice and guidance. Many pilgrims were even able to turn to the Tanakh in the original Hebrew, this is a fact. The very first book ever published in North America was a translation of the Book of Psalms, and it had Hebrew strewn throughout the text to help clarify meanings. It's also why the Puritan minister Cotton Mather, when he wrote his history of the Puritans in America, referred to the early settler leaders as, quote, these are his words, our Hasidim Rishonim, unquote, meaning our first righteous men. Mather also said that they ruled, quote, unquote, meaning with love and reverence for God. He used the Hebrew, and he didn't translate it for his readers. He didn't think he needed to translate because he assumed they knew Hebrew. Puritans were Christians, remember, not Jews. But Hebrew was a language many of them understood and even used. We all know, or should know, that the United States doesn't have an official language. But that's not for the want of trying. Members of the Continental Congress considered whether their new nation should have an official language. They wanted to have so little to do with England that they considered several other languages for America before they gave up and decided not to decide at all. The four languages they considered were French, Greek, German, and, wait for it, Hebrew. Yes, they actually considered making Hebrew the official language of the United States of America. 
Here's another fact. Hebrew was an essential language for many of America's founding fathers. Hebrew was taught at all the major institutions of higher learning, including Rutgers, Princeton, known then as the College of New Jersey, Brown, King's College, that's Columbia University today, Harvard, Yale, William & Mary, Johns Hopkins, and Dartmouth. In other words, it was taught at the very breeding grounds for leadership in the New Republic. For several years in the mid-17th century, Harvard even required its students to study Hebrew twice a day. At least several of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were fluent in Hebrew, including Maryland's Samuel Chase, whose father once taught Hebrew at Eton back in merry old England. Charles Thompson, the Continental Congress's secretary, was a well-known Greek and Hebrew scholar who spent much of his downtime at the Congress either studying the Tanakh in its original Hebrew or writing a translation of it, which he later published. Then there's Virginia-born James Madison, our fourth president, the father of the Constitution. When Madison graduated from the College of New Jersey, today's Princeton University, he decided to stay on for an extra year just to study Hebrew and philosophy. Not only did he speak and write Hebrew fluently, but when his class graduated in 1771, he delivered his speech at the graduation in fluent Hebrew. That's a fact, too. There's no question that the Hebrew language and its use were important to the Puritans and to those who came after them. Let's hear what the late journalist and author Herman J. Obermeyer had to say. Quote, the first Hebrew book printed in America was written in 1735 for classes taught at Harvard. Hebrew is prominently displayed in the seals of Dartmouth and Yale. The erudite Protestant clerics who headed America's colonial colleges, Eliezer Wheelock, Jonathan Edwards, Ezra Stiles, among others, were Hebraists. Hebrew was held in high regard by colonial America's intellectual leaders out of respect for the Jews' greatest contribution to Western civilization, unquote. That contribution was our Torah and the rest of the Tanakh. Dartmouth eventually dropped the Hebrew, but Yale's seal still has it. Why was Hebrew considered so essential? Because the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, was considered essential to creating a just and equitable society, and that is especially true of the first five books, meaning the Torah. The Puritans were preoccupied with the Tanakh. It colored all their activities, in the words of the late NYU professor Abraham Koch. Not only were these settlers, quote, imbued with the spirit of the prophets and with the lessons of the scriptures, unquote, Koch wrote, but, quote, they also accepted biblical precepts and commandments literally and applied them vigorously, unquote. Koch has more to say, quote, the influence of Judaic culture went far beyond the bounds of technical scholarship and professional training for theologians. One has only to look at some of the names of the towns of the United States, Salem, Canaan, Zion, Hebron, Bethlehem, Sharon, Palestine, Jaffa, Goshen, Bethel, Carmel, Eden, Jordan, Jericho, Rehoboth, Pisgah, Nimrod, Shiloh, Gilead, see that the intellectual and spiritual geography of the founders was derived as much from Hebrew culture as from their immediate experience in the old world or the new, unquote. Koch referred to the early Puritans as, quote, stern and devoted self-styled saints who had a great deal to do with the establishment of much that can be called typically American. What influenced them, therefore, can be said to have influenced America. Prime among their source books was the Old Testament, meaning the Tanakh, 
To them, the book was not a mere narrative of days gone by, but a scripture in life meeting their daily needs and aspirations. Think what we will about their narrowness and bigotry. There is probably nothing more valuable, memorable, weighty, or even commendable about the Puritans than their religion, and in that they were almost solely influenced by the Hebrew Bible." The cultural historian Gabriel Sivan wrote about this in his book, The Bible and Civilization, quote, No Christian community in history identified more with the people of the book than did these early settlers who believed their own lives to be a literal reenactment of the biblical drama of the Hebrew nation. These emigre Puritans saw themselves as instruments of divine providence, a people chosen to build their new commonwealth on the covenant entered into at Mount Sinai, unquote. Koch elaborates on this, quote, They felt that their church was in actuality a continuation of the covenant between God and the Jews. This theme was hammered out from every pulpit. John Stevens in a church in New Marlboro, Massachusetts said, quote, The Christian church so-called is only a continuation and extension of the Jewish church, unquote. The Puritans, Koch wrote, quote, built up a body of law about the covenant, interpreted previously existing laws in terms of it, and derived a great deal of their power from it. Morality, not ceremony, was the vital teaching here. The accent was always based on moral conduct rather than on ritual alone, unquote. Sounds like the theme of many of my sermons, columns, and podcasts. Koch and Sivan are Jewish scholars, but Christian scholars are right there with them on this. Dr. John Woodland Welch, writing in the Brigham Young University Law Review, had this to say, quote, The Hebrew Bible was nothing short of the underlying fabric upon which American society was founded, unquote. He added this, quote, The profound influence of biblical law on early American colonial law is obvious. This utilization of biblical law was not a passing fancy in colonial America, unquote. Welch wasn't exaggerating. It's no accident that many of the early law codes in Puritan New England were based on the Torah rather than the Christian Bible or English common law. In 1641, for example, the Massachusetts Bay Colony adopted what it called the Capital Laws of New England. The law code was based almost entirely on Torah law, albeit with a Talmudic spin, adapting rabbinic concepts as well as biblical ones. Did I fail to mention, by the way, that another area of essential study in colonial colleges was rabbinic literature, or that many of the colonial Hebraists of that era also studied Aramaic so they could study this literature, especially the Talmud, which is written in substantial part in Aramaic? Anyway, in 1655, 14 years after New England's laws were promulgated, the New Haven colony's legislators made no bones about their view of Torah law. Quote, the judicial laws of God, as they were delivered by Moses, and as they are a fence to the moral law, shall generally bind all offenders till they be branched out into particulars hereafter. Unquote. That fence to the moral law comment, by the way, is also a rabbinic reference, not a biblical one. The Torah issued laws. The sages of blessed memory built fences around those laws. Unless you studied Talmud, to refer to a fence to the moral law makes no sense. These people studied Talmud. New Haven's Code of 1655 contains 79 statutes. 38 of them came right out of the Tanakh, and almost all of them were from the Torah. 
In other words, nearly half of the statutes in the New Haven Code of 1655 had their origins in Torah law, while only 3% came from the Christian Bible. What is it that Puritans saw in the Torah especially that made it so necessary for them to use it as the basis for founding of America? What is it about Torah law especially that our founding fathers also looked to it? It was that the Torah espoused the very values they sought for America because the Torah asserted that all people are created equal, that all are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Clearly, then, the Jewish roots of American democracy are undeniable. If only we Americans put full force behind the words that were meant to make America great in the first place, we'd be creating the kind of state God intended in the first place. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear from you about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org and email me, please. Happy Fourth of July. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.